Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this time in New York again. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, before we get started, I wanted to let everyone know, but especially our listeners in Berlin, that we are doing our second live podcast taping event. And yeah, this time we're doing it right here in Berlin. So, it's going to be the evening of May 25th at Prachtwerk, which is in Neukölln, the neighborhood here in Berlin. You can look that up online. Adam and I will be talking all things economic with a special emphasis on Germany. You can get tickets for this one-night-only event at podfestberlin.com or by checking the show notes for this episode. Adam and I are really excited to meet our Berlin listeners, so yeah, we hope to see you all there. But for now, we'll get back to our data point, something more from the news as usual. And the data point there is nine, as in the 9th of May, which is when Iran and Saudi Arabia are each supposed to reopen diplomatic missions in each other's countries. Saudi Arabia and Iran are taking a major step to improve relations at a gathering. Saudi TV showed the foreign ministers from Iran and Saudi Arabia signing a landmark deal. Brokered These are the first significant steps towards normalization since the two restored relations last month. Sometime thereafter, if Saudi Arabia takes up an invitation made this week, King Salman or his son, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who actually rules Saudi Arabia, could make a state visit to Tehran. So this follows years of estrangement and rivalry, which led to proxy military battles across the region from Yemen to Syria. It all seems like a pretty watershed moment for the region, signaling the potential, at least, for a lasting peace, one that the United States, interestingly enough, is not responsible for creating or overseeing. We thought we'd delve into whether that's actually the case, whether these countries have the economic and political power to create a, a new order on their own in the Middle East. So Adam, we've talked before about the Saudi economy, and uh, if I recall correctly, our conversation centered on Saudi Arabia's dependence on oil production. And I wonder, is that kind of economy a sufficient basis for being an independent power in global or regional politics, I suppose? I mean, I think it depends a little bit on what you mean by independent. Um, I mean, clearly the fact that Saudi Arabia um, depends as heavily as it does on its 10 million barrels per day of oil exports, um, you know, means that in a sense it relies on its customers to, to um, you know, to generate revenue. But conversely, it's such a big player in global oil markets that it exerts huge leverage. And you far more often, after all, hear stories and read stories about the way in which Saudi decisions will influence everyone else than the other way around. I mean, it accounts by itself for between 17 and 18 percent of um, total seaborne oil exports. And it's the controlling and deciding voice in OPEC, which now by way of OPEC plus extends to Russia. And so... Um, is it truly autonomous, if you like? Is anyone really, in that sense, truly autonomous? Well, not. No, it depends on this, on on exports. But it has far more leverage than the vast majority of other um, players in the global system. It's certainly a top tier, uh, if you like, influencer of the world economy, and that 
power is um, further compounded by the fact that unlike most economies, when we look at you know national economic exports of Germany, for instance, they're fragmented over literally tens of thousands of small companies. And even if you look at the, you know, the concentrated group of the largest exporters, 20 to 30 companies are responsible for the biggest flow of German exports. In the Saudi case, it's one single entity at Saudi Aramco, which is one of the very few non-American companies in the top 10 of corporate size in the world. So it has this essential export. It's a huge player in that market globally. The exports that it does are concentrated in the hands of one company, and it has stored up Saudi Arabia in the form of reserves, $450 billion worth of, of assets. Now, as we know from the Russian case, depending on where you've put them, they can be vulnerable to, to impounding. But in the immediate term, that means that Saudi, especially in high oil price periods like the current one, is a major supplier of funding to the world economy, to the global dollar system in the form of petrodollars. That's not a lever you can easily pull, but it certainly means that you are one of the powers doing the pulling rather than being pulled, right? Saudi is not in the position of a desperate borrower that uh, needs access to global credit. So, Yes, I think by any realistic measure, um, Saudi's economic position, at least for the foreseeable future, gives it huge heft. And though we may, of course, imagine a world beyond fossil fuels, the Saudis are relatively calm and confident about that because they know that their production costs are the lowest in the world. And so for the residual remainder of oil demand, and there are no realistic models of energy transition, which don't include some oil supply, Saudi will be the supplier of choice. So they envision a long future for themselves as a key energy provider. And in the energy space beyond, you know, in the renewable energy space with the amount of insulation they get, um, with the amount of solar radiation um, on the kingdom, they, of course, also imagine a, a future for themselves as a solar energy powerhouse. Just to clarify here, I mean, this is interesting. It sounds like you're saying that a sort of non-diversified economy is actually a source of political strength in, in some ways this kind of well if, if it's all, yeah if it's organized in the in the form of a single state-owned corporation then you don't have a you know you have fewer coordination problems of course you have you have the question of how you control the technocrats that run the business but i don't think mbs has any doubt about his ability to do that if the you know push comes to shove but certainly you don't you know in the case of germany when we speak about it as an export champion we are lumping together what is in fact a, you know, essentially a private sector, very diverse, very complicated private sector over which the government has no direct influence, right? When we talk about Germany's export earnings, this is a hmm. this is a figure of speech rather than a reality. Whereas in the Saudi case, it's it's literally the earnings of a state-owned company hmm. whose budget is essentially identical with that of the state. And so it's simple, it's crude, but it does indeed give you heft. And if it's something like oil, where we have a 30 to 40 year time horizon on it, like, you know, it's, um, yes, it does indeed give you security. So Saudi Arabia seems to have had options in terms of its diplomatic pursuits. It, it had the, the choice of either further pursuing rapprochement with Iran that we've seen, or instead deepening this new regional relationship with Israel that's been represented by the Abraham Accords. Uh, you know, in, in the past week or so, we've been hearing more about the Iran path, but which path seems to be more potentially transformative for the region to you, Adam? 
Yes, I think this is an issue of, you know, who does Saudi want to play with in the region and who does Saudi want to play with on the global stage? And I think those are the two things are interconnected, right? There, there are shifts going on at both in the regional level, but also on the global stage. And what the Abraham Accords sort of pointed to was, if you like, the kind of, I think, the limit of of you might say a kind of relatively realistic American diplomacy where you would try and organize a rapprochement between um, you know, America's investment in Israel and America's long-term investment in the security of the Gulf states. I mean, for all of the disputes with Saudi Arabia over the Khashoggi killing and human rights and so on, it's undeniable that at least since the 1970s, the United States has made a gigantic investment in the security of the leading oil producers in the Gulf. And the Abraham Accords are one way of squaring that with, of course, the proviso that Iran is then the target, essentially, of a double, in, a double isolation from the Saudi side and the Israeli side. And having, as it were, seen the advantages of that and exploited them to a considerable degree and moved some way towards reopening relations with Israel, I think faced with the continuing impasse on the American side, that America essentially wants you to do two things, which is normalize with Israel, which is difficult for any Arab state to do, and on the other hand, to isolate Iran, which is something that Saudi you know, can get on board with, given the tensions between the two states, which go back a long way, and given the natural, you know, you could say, rivalry in the Gulf region. But it's also a limiting position. And so with, when new global players come along and the global configuration shifts, I think what we're seeing is the Saudis, as you say, exploring their options, which is another indicator, I think, of the degree of freedom that they have and of what's, you know, the power that has entered the scene um, is China. I mean, Russia's been in the region for a long time. I mean, you know, Iran's diplomacy, geopolitics can't be thought without Russia, its great northern neighbor. But but China is a new player on the scene. And, and what many of the regional actors are discovering, I think, is in a world in which America is confronting, is backing Israel, is confronting Iran, is confronting Russia, and is now confronting China as well, all of a sudden, a variety of other options open up for you in regional diplomacy. And that's what the what the Saudis are doing. I think they've kind of banked the Abraham Accords, realized there's a limit to how far those are ever going to go, and then think, okay, well, now there are these other options which China slash Russia open up for us. And those then in turn spool off other rearrangements in the region at large, right? So what becomes perhaps more the focus all of a sudden are divisions within the Sunni camp. Um, so classically t Turkey, Qatar, and when you know Egypt was under the Islamic Brotherhood, Egypt. That also, I think, is simmering down to a considerable extent, though Syria may remain a flashpoint. But the axis that was Russia, Iran, Syria, um, you know, now moves into uh, you know, a potential opening for the Saudis. And that then in turn enables the Saudis and other players to begin thinking about defusing the Yemen conflict and potentially even, and this is really, I think, maybe the most shocking news, right? The Saudis welcoming the the Hamas delegation from Palestine, nominally as part of the Hajj, as the great, you know, great pilgrimage. But, you know, this is a remarkable leap in in diplomacy for the Saudis to be reaching out to the to the to the Palestinians in that way, in a direct, in a direct form. So yes, a lot of moving pieces here. But I think it's the it's the the fact that the American position seems so fixed um, that opens up the possibility for both regional and global reconfigurations for players like Saudi. You've alluded to the long-standing rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia. There's deep-seated ideological divides that have sort of informed that rivalry, and I'm curious whether deeper economic 
and diplomatic ties between the states would be enough to kind of make those ideological divisions less salient. I mean, what does history really teach us about that sort of dynamic? This is the sort of ge- the German question, right? The the Handel durch Wandel, the transformation of political positions through trade. I mean, I have a sense that that exaggerates the significance of trade in this context in particular. I mean, think about it. Like, you know, Saudi has been supplying oil to Europe and East Asia, starting with Japan and, you know, now China um, for, for decades. It hasn't done much to moderate or change the ideological positions on either side, right? I mean, mm. America is Saudi's major security backer for decades. I mean, that too turns out to be compatible with, a you know, a completely... Uh, rift in in political and constitutional thinkings. I don't think this is a you know an example of where one would expect that kind of ideological convergence to happen. I mean, might it contribute to defusing and de-escalating potential tension between Iran and Saudi Arabia? And that's surely what the Saudis are hoping for. Um, the I think the the smart money and the people who saw this coming were folks who were really tracking MBS's um, Saudi, um, you know, 2030 vision. And they're having a hard time making the 2030 vision. We talked about this when we did the Saudi episode, like this vision of an incredibly infrastructure-driven, service sector-orientated, high-tech, sustainable transformation of of large parts of Saudi Arabia. it, frankly, it's it's got a bit of a credibility issue. I mean, it's it's got a credibility issue because of MBS's reputation. It's got a credibility issue because it just seems otherworldly. It's got a credibility issue because the Emirates are a you know a version of this already existing. So why would anyone prefer to locate in a Saudi organized you know kind of um, globalized um, capitalist paradise, as opposed to the one that already exists in the Gulf, um, and is you know welcoming Russians and people from all over the world in this moment of tension. So, and then the last element of credibility is that Saudi is a state at war, spending huge amounts of money in Yemen, and you know potentially facing attacks from either the Iranians themselves or Iranian-backed militia of various types. And I think the idea behind um, this sort of regional de-escalation policy is crucially for MBS to to you know move to a you know to pacify the region so as to make this economic vision more plausible. So it's rather the other way around. It isn't so much that economics by itself will lead to a realignment, such as the hope that through regional realignment. And the analysts who were focused on this called the Iranian-Saudi rapprochement more than 12 months ago. So this does seem to be like a, quite a reliable you know, indicator. They said the 2030 vision is, is, halt, you know, is in trouble, it's stuttering, something needs to be done. And so the, the initiative seems to be coming from that side. And the Saudi hope will be that if they can kind of normalize relations, then they will attract more foreign investment. That is an opportunity to take a break here because we will come back to actually dive some more into the economics of Saudi and Iran. Hi, welcome back. So there's plenty of talk about how this rapprochement between Iran and Saudi could 
reduced conflict in places like Yemen and Syria and even Sudan, where obviously we're seeing some renewed conflict this week. I'm curious whether even in the absence of the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia, whether we are exaggerating the extent to which that rivalry played a role in those conflicts. I mean, are those countries like Yemen and Syria, etc., already in a position to achieve stability on their own, even outside of that rivalry? Well, I'm glad we're talking about this because the Sudan story has been very much on my mind and did a um, newsletter about, a chart book newsletter about um, Sudan this week because the, the explosion of violence there is really very alarming. Sudan is a huge piece of the regional jigsaw puzzle. Um, this question as to how far you know the instability, violence in neighbours of Saudi Arabia is, as, as it were, attributable to their internal issues or how far it's a reflection of the great Iran-Saudi struggle requires a kind of bit-by-bit bit answer because if you're to take seriously the local circumstances, then you, you kind of have to. And if you start in the Sudanese case, as I think Sudan and Yemen are really closely interconnected. I think the key point is that Sudan is, of course was divided along religious grounds, and those were not polarizations that really pertained to the Saudi-Iranian clash, but the clash between the north of Sudan and the south of Sudan, and that was a clash between Muslims and Christians. In, in the northern part, the rump of Sudan, there is, of course, also the major regional and ethnic rivalries, notably Darfur, of course. Um, and those were really the drivers of um, conflict within Sudan, which went on for decades, and in that conflict, interestingly, though it's a, you know you might think it was a long way away, Iran was a major player as a backer of the Sudanese Islamist regime that took power in 1989. They they consciously modelled themselves on the Iranian revolution of you know uh, ten years before. And Iran um, responded to this and provided various types of support to al-Bashir's regime. The, the problem for Khartoum was that in 2011, the south, the Christian part of Sudan, breaks away. And with that, they lose oil because they were, as it were, a, a bona fide, a fairly substantial oil producer and exporter. And that's what the regime ran on. And at that point, they become desperate. Iran is in no position to really supply them uh, with resources. And so in a rather cynical move between 2014 and 2016-17, Sudan lurches into the camp of the Saudi Emirates axis, which precisely at that moment is about to intervene in Yemen. And so at that point, as it were, um, Sudan flips from being a pro-Iranian to being a pro-Gulf uh, Emirate um, Saudi uh, aligned player in the system. It doesn't internally produce much dispute because that is not the fault line. In Yemen, of course, the Iran-Saudi split is absolutely fundamental, but it's fundamental because of the underlying cultural politics of the region, which is indeed split between Sunni and Shia. So the Saudi-Iran split matters if your internal politics align with that force field. In the Sudan case, Sudan flips relatively, as it were, concertedly from the Iranian camp to the Saudi Emirates camp without that being a major driver of internal conflict. The war in Yemen is very unpopular in Sudan, but that's a different issue. Um, but Yemen itself is, is torn apart by this, by this division. And in, in their case, whatever the local grievances between the Houthis and their opponents, it's quite clear that the politicking on the part of uh, Saudi and Iran has been decisive in destabilizing that, destabilizing that country.
just to clarify here, I mean, it sounds like this cuts both ways. I mean, in places where the Saudi-Iranian rivalry has exacerbated existing conflicts internally, th- those conflicts are real. Those exist in, in places like Lebanon, yeah. Syria, Yemen. Those conflicts won't go away, even if Iran and Saudi patch up their problems. And and we should recognize that the conflict between Saudi and Iran is also not just simply an ego thing, right? Because the, there's a substantial uh, Shia minority in Saudi Arabia. And the current escalation of tension between the two has a lot to do with a Saudi crackdown, which led to the execution of a very prominent Shia cleric, you know, uh, uh, leader in Saudi Arabia. So the underlying distribution of Sunni and Shia um, across the region is a major cause of tension. And that's, you know, the anxiety on the part of many of the Gulf states towards Iran is that at various points in its history, of course, Iran has been a promoter, an active promoter of a kind of pan-Shia um, um, activism and revolutionary politics, which is very, very threatening. It was threatening to Iraq. It was threatening to Saddam Hussein. If you remember the, you know, the Marsh Arabs and the conflict, the ghastly conflicts in the uh, in the in the south of uh, south of Iraq. Um, same, it spreads. You know, the the same sort of belt of of Shia uh, population spreads uh, across the region, and so that's the that's one of the underlying sociological factors in this entire in this entire struggle. It's not just a matter of big egos and mm. and state power. It's a matter of quite deep social, cultural, and economic divisions. So finally, I wanted to ask whether it's the broader Middle East's destiny and the destiny of its composite powers here, Iran and Saudi Arabia, to be subordinate to outside powers, whether the United States or China, which helped broker the Iran-Saudi detente. I mean, do these countries need to be aligned with Washington or Beijing? Or is this whole alignment, non-alignment concept not really relevant in this instance? Yeah, I kind of want to get on a soapbox about this. Like, I don't think either the Maybe the alignment issue, but certainly the subordination term is really an unhelpful way of thinking about the the current situation. There's a bit of me that wants to kind of lecture Americans. You know, the fact that you've suddenly woken up to this alarming situation where China is doing diplomacy in the Middle East. You know, it's kind of this has been going on for a long time. Like America's influence in the region has been waning in such a dramatic way over a period of more than a decade. And it goes back, of course, to the disaster of 2003 in very central ways that we talked about on the occasion of the anniversary. Now, I mean, I would see this this whole region and the, much of the wider world as well as caught up in a dynamic of increasing multipolarity, right? That's the central logic here. If you think about the history of the region, it really was, after all, part of the Ottoman Empire. And then as the British destroyed and dismantled the Ottoman Empire and and as it dismantled itself and as Arab um, and other nationalist movements um, broke it up, what happened was a kind of new form of hegemony under the British, which was very real and where one could really speak of many of the Arab states, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Oman, it was true client states of uh, of the British to a lighter touch form of hegemony under the Americans really from from 1970s from the 1970s onwards a little bit more robust with Iran's revolution and then with with Iraq but nevertheless really a tender a centrifugal tendency taking over and then with the fiasco of American politics in the region in the last 20 years 
um, that centrifugal tendency has built very dramatically. There's rapid population growth around the region. There's very, very considerable economic growth on the back of the, you know, the price, the oil price hikes of the 70s, which have led to really dramatic economic development across the region. And and so no, the the the, the underlying story here is one of a prolonged, gradual, decades-long, half-century-long autonomization. You know, a, a move away to away away from what was before absolutely an imperial order, and is increasingly one essentially of a kind of decentralized. Or not that that's not even quite the right word. There's nothing very decentralized about Saudi Arabia, but certainly it's its own actor playing in a force field of other very significant other players. I mean, you know, for a while there, the, the Emiratis were hugely active, essentially, you know, certainly collaborating with the Americans, but but pursuing their own very assertive policy. Turkey is a huge player in the region. Um, we've spoken about Iran. Um, and, and so this is a multipolar struggle in which the ability of any outside actor, be it the Chinese, you know, the United States, the Europeans, the Russians to control this is very, very limited indeed. Um, so that would be my kind of, that's the, that I think is the, these are the glasses we've got to put on and keep on and really, you know, understand as the, as the trajectory here. China, China just saw a diplomatic opportunity to do, you know, to do some, to do some business, to, 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 to make a positive difference in a region they care about because they're, they're potential major clients. They're certainly major sources of energy. This seemed like an open goal, you know, for anyone who wasn't committed to the particular set of, you know, uh, uh, um, set in stone positions America's in, there looks like a deal that should be possible here. I mean, just to play devil's advocate, I guess, I mean, doesn't the very term of superpower, which we always use, we talk about the United States, we talk about China as potential superpowers, doesn't that imply not that these countries can control what's going on everywhere in the world, but that somehow... They're structuring what's going on. That this rivalry between these two mm -hmm. superpowers is somehow, yeah, helping shape the context in which all of these other kind of powers are operating. Is that more sensible? I wouldn't disagree with that. Yeah, wouldn't disagree with that at all. That's certainly the case, obviously. But you know, Saudi has that kind of leverage too. Mm. You, mm. Know, you know, when when they decide oil production policy in OPEC Plus. <laughs> you know, everyone feels the force of that, including the United States and. To, to the vast frustration of the Biden administration, the Saudis have shown zero willingness to to even not even forget comply, even show polite regard for the position the Americans are taking on on oil. So I, that's precisely why I think of you know Saudi as one of these kind of players. It sets the terms for other actors, um, not just within the region but but globally. Turkey sets the terms for other actors. Regionally, for instance, to a very considerable extent, it's a huge influence across, you know, the politics of Libya, for instance, or Syria. So absolute that I think is a really good way of measuring, not as it were, just, you know, command and obey, but but structuring um, conditions. At, and that's precisely the grounds on which I would argue for an increase in pluralization is that lots of actors have the capacity to do that in this system. OK, we'll leave it there for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, 
consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.